I've spent the last 12 years attempting to build the ultimate clinic gym hybrid facility where we offer advanced sports chiropractic and the ultimate in exercise progressions. Now I've sold that business and decided to take the plunge to create a massive change within the world of chiropractic. My goal is to get a hundred other chiropractors to completely revolutionize our industry and provide exactly what we want our patients to experience while helping to double our profits and maximize the license that we're given. But the real question is this, how can we create this massive change without becoming sleazy salespeople or doing crazy marketing efforts? This podcast has the answers. So follow along as I learn, apply, and share the information from the best minds out there into this Clinic Gym Radio. I'm Josh Satterley, and I'm happy to have you here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Clinic Gym Radio. I am your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I'm honored to be on with uh, Sue Falsoni. Sue, how are you today? I am great. How are you, Josh? I'm fantastic, and I really appreciate your time. Now, Sue is an uh, instructor, an amazing author, um, shoot, uh, first female to work in many uh, different organizations. Uh, are you an astronaut as well, or is that later? <laughs> um, no, just after I sleep at a Holiday Inn. <laughs> oh, okay, good, yeah. Well, uh, Rear Admiral, uh, you know, a former prosecutor in the state of uh, Georgia, Sue Falsoni, pretty amazing person. So uh, some of those are lies, some of them are true, but can you give her a little background into who you are, shooting how the heck you got here yeah um yeah that's a, an interesting story yeah um sue falsoni i'm a physical therapist athletic trainer and strength coach um i have definitely functioned in all three of those roles at varying points awesome. in my career and in my life um i used to uh be the vice president for athletes performance which is now known as exos um and started the physical therapy program uh there um starting in 2001 i think i was mark's seventh employee way back in the day um i was the head athletic trainer for the la dodgers and for the u.s men's national team um, and then have been a consultant in varying roles um, to different NFL and NBA organizations and MLB organizations in the last couple of years. Um, I have my own education company called Structure and Function uh, Education, and I just wrote a book called Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance. That's pretty much it, right? Pretty, pretty boring. <laughs> yeah, That's what we hear from every guest that we have on the show, or it's about a thousand times more. So, all right. So let's let's go way back here because I'm interested in this. So there you are, uh, a young, I don't know, college student considering PT school. I don't know your path. Went to PT. How did you go from there to uh, athletes' performance, which at that time was like there weren't any performance. There weren't a lot of performance options out there for jobs. Yeah, in 01, there, I mean, we were, we were really it. It was really interesting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm old, so physical therapy was my undergraduate uh, degree. And then um, got into the clinic and realized it just wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing. And I had the opportunity to work with a, an amazing athletic trainer in that clinic. And um, Now, where was this first? In this North Carolina. Okay. Yep, in North Carolina. Um, I had taken a job with one of the places I had an internship with. They had offered me a job and worked there for a couple of years and met just some amazing people and worked in general outpatient orthopedics, um, but just knew long term it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and so met, you were one of those people that said, I'm going to PT school because I, I want to work in sports. But then when that dream didn't happen, you didn't just give up like a lot and just stay in outpatient orthopedics. You actually searched out how to get in back into sports, huh? I, yeah, I did. And I really, you know, I even went into PT school thinking it was a, a road to medical school. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And, um, you know, I got into PT school and started doing internships and really realized that the surgeons did not do 
anything that I wanted to do. I loved the uh-huh. interaction. I loved, you know, creating that relationship with people and helping them along the path. And I realized pretty quickly that medical school was not going to be in the cards for me um, uh-huh. because I really enjoyed PT. I didn't, I really didn't think I was going to enjoy it that much. Um, but really one of the reasons I did PT as my undergrad was because I just thought having a biology degree was not a smart idea. So I thought I would do PT as my pre-med and then, you know, apply to medical school and become a surgeon. Um, but yeah, quickly realized that that was not the right path for me and got into the PT thing. And then, yeah, always, you know, I, when I was younger, I always told my mom, I wanted to work for the Buffalo Bills cause I grew up in Buffalo. <laughs> so, um, and so, yeah, you know, and I, I got into outpatient ortho and, and it was, um, I was in a tough clinic, you know, it was a lot of car accidents, a lot of back pain, um, you know, I was seeing a patient every 30 minutes and, you know, it was a really, really high paced clinic, um, which taught me a lot of different things. And I worked with some amazing clinicians and an amazing manager who really challenged me. Um, and it was great for, for what it was at that point in my life. And, um, but yeah, I realized I really wanted to, I actually kind of debated. I didn't know if I wanted to necessarily do sports. I, I knew there were three things I thought I maybe would want to do women's health, pediatric orthopedics or sports. Um, I lasted one day with our women's health therapist and quickly realized that's not what I wanted to do. Um, and then I did um, a, a, a lot because they knew I had an interest in the pediatric orthopedic thing. Um, all the pediatric orthopedic cases went on my schedule and pr- again, pretty quickly realized that like kids who are in pain and dealing with broken legs and broken arms. And I was like, Oh, this is not, also what I wanted to do. (laughs) So then, you know, sports was kind of my, really my third thing and the last thing I explored. And that's really the thing that stuck. And so after I started talking with the athletic trainer, um, her um, name was Karen Tanner that I worked with um, in North Carolina. And she said, oh, you know, there's this great program at the University of North Carolina. Um, The guy that runs the program, his name's Bill Prentice, and, you know, you should give him a call. And, like, little did I know, Bill Prentice is, like, the godfather of athletic training, literally wrote the athletic training Bible. Um, You know, and this was back in 1998, and I called him, and he answered his phone. Like, that would never happen in this day and age. (laughs) And he, you know, answered all these questions about athletic training and the program, and they had this double major for physical therapists that – allowed a physical therapist to double major in um, human movement and then kind of have a concentration in sports. And they gave it to one person every year. And I thought, all right, if I get this slot, like sports is meant to be, if I don't, I'm going to probably switch gears and go into fashion design and like just completely switch gears because I was not enjoying physical therapy and outpatient orthopedics. Wow. Um, And somehow I got the spot. So I went to North Carolina, to UNC and, um, yeah, studied sports medicine and, and was able to, to double major. And it was um, a really amazing time. And um, my one program, the human movement program was super, super, um, uh, super didactic. It was really very um, academic based. And then the sports medicine stuff was really very um, hands-on. And so I think the combination of those two programs for me worked perfect, um, even though it was really, really stressful. Um, and at the same time, athletic training had just switched over to, um, athletic training had just switched over to a curriculum program. So I also had a complete, I think four undergraduate classes for athletic training. So I'm taking undergraduate classes with the undergraduate students that I'm supervising as a grad student, the whole thing was really backwards, um, but how I typically do things. So it kind of flows. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was pretty That's cool. funny because that, that combination would give you, I mean, my, in my mind, you have a very good 
reactive tool set, meaning you can handle that athlete when they get injured right now, as in the athletic training, and then transition them to the proactive method or the proactive um, care where you're designing a rehab program for them long-term, right? From day one to day 180. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then during my time at UNC, you know, to make a little extra money, I was also doing personal training on the side. So I was writing strength and conditioning programs. You had so much extra time, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but you know, poor grad student, I needed to make a little bit of money. I was in between two programs. So no one really had like a GA position for me that first year. I kind of had to um, figure something out. And so that was really my first time functioning as a personal trainer as well was, was during college. So that was, so so there you are on the East coast and how the heck did you hear about, you know, athletes performance or I don't even know what it was called then. Was it athletes performance yet? Athletes performance. So actually I hadn't even heard of it. I ended up, I had dated a guy for seven years from college and we broke up and you know, life was over as I knew it. And so I (laughs) you reconsidered fashion design and thought maybe that's what I should have (laughs) done. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so we broke up and, um, I just wanted to move. And so I was actually going to move. Um, I was a huge Red Sox fan. That's how I learned uh, about baseball was, was off of the Red Sox. And and this was before they won any world series. And I thought, all right, I'm going to move to Boston. I'm going to buy a season ticket to the Red Sox and just watch baseball all summer and figure out my life. And one of my best friends said, if you move somewhere warm, I'll move with you. And, and this is, sorry, this is Boston before anybody had won, right? I mean, yeah, this was the like, Pats weren't, weren't killing it. The yeah, uh, Red clear. Sox hadn't won anything. I just was, I just really enjoyed Boston as a city and um, was like, I'm just going to go figure it out. And she said, no, move somewhere warm and I'll go with you. And I said, Florida? And she said, no, let's do Arizona. And I said, okay. So right. she, out, she we packed up my stuff. We drove across the country. We literally pulled off the first exit that said Phoenix city limits. We had no jobs. We didn't know anybody. We'd never been to Phoenix. Um, and we got an apartment for, I think six months and it was just supposed to be like a temporary thing. It was never supposed to be something that, um, I don't know, stuck. (laughs) And and so, so then I actually ended up reading an article on Nomar. That was the year he won the batting title and saw that he trained at a facility called athletes performance. And it was in Tempe, Arizona. And I looked it up and it was like 10 minutes North of where I was living. And, um, I called and, um, they hung up on me they were like, Oh, we just opened and we don't even have a fax machine and like call back. And they basically hung up on me. Um, and then, um, I decided to go down there and I met, um, I met a guy or I met a, met Brandon Marcello, actually Brandon Marcello is the first guy that, um, met me at the door and he took me on a tour and walked me around. And I told him, you know, I said, did I have just, hair at that point. He did have hair at that oh, point. This was a long time ago. <laughs> it was a while ago. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. And so, yeah, so Brandon gave me a tour and I said, you know, I'm only working part time. Um, do you mind if I volunteer and hang out? And he was like, no, we'd love to have you. And so I started volunteering a couple days a week. And, you know, the more physical therapist is around, the more people are hurt. And, um, you know, it, they just sort of started asking advice. And they said, um, you know, hey, this guy always has knee pain when he squats. Like, you want to take a look at him? And so we just started kind of collaborating that way. And that was, um, you know, that lasted for a few months. And then by September of 2001, Mark had offered me a job. And so that's kind of how it started. It was complete happenstance. I did not move to Arizona um, to, uh, to work for AP and it was total happy. So you walking in that building and getting a tour was 
essentially the start of their physical therapy program. Yep. That's exactly right. It was <laughs> that's, <in> 2001. <laughs> that's awesome. And so over that time, for those people who are listening, I mean, you, you've, you've been around, you've, I've seen you on stage, I've seen you in books, I've seen you uh, mentioned in a thousand different ways. Who were some of the early people that you worked with there? Maybe not at AP, but that were, that now are household names, but at the time were, I mean, Brandon Marcello was probably a young scrub intern not, he's not an intern, but I mean, I can just picture, he, he looks like a kid now with glasses, right? Like, and yeah. the guy's wicked smart now, but you're talking about, what was that, 17 years ago? Oh, absolutely. It was 17 years ago. I mean, we were all such kids, you know, I was in my yeah. early twenties and, you know, Mark was a kid. I mean, I think Mark was, you know, 30 years old or something or 32 years old, 33. Same years. haircut. Yeah. Same exact haircut. You know, it was, we would always say he was the, his, profile was the apostrophe in athletes. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it was me and Luke Richardson, who's now, um, the director of performance for Houston Texans and, you know, long time of his um, career with the Broncos and, um, Daryl Leto, who was with the Oakland Raiders and the Houston Rockets and, um, who I'm having dinner with tonight, which is great. Like I spent with all those guys. And then, um, you know, Brandon, who's gone on to do amazing things and, um, yeah, I mean, it was all of us and it was so amazing because we just, we didn't have a lot of, um, we didn't have a lot of, um, clients back then. And mm-hmm. so it was great because if someone came in and I would be treating them or evaluating them, then the coaches like Daryl, Joe, or, you know, whoever, like everybody would hang out. And then when they would go to do their workout, I didn't have a patient. So I would go watch their work out. And so it was really great because that's really how we bridged that gap from rehab to performance was the more I hung out with the strength coaches, the better a clinician I became because I really didn't understand even, even then after my time at UNC, I really didn't understand what it took to really get somebody back to high level sport, you know, being able to do three sets of three sets of 10 of a step up doesn't cut it. And so how do you move people at different loads at different speeds? And how do you make people perform for six sets of one? That's something that was really foreign to me as a healthcare professional. Um, Something that was a little bit more understanding to me from a personal training standpoint, but even then, like my personal training clients didn't have those high level goals, right? They just wanted to lose body fat. Yeah. I can imagine you as a PT, it's like, how do you rehab a, you know, what's your rehab protocol for an ACL? And you, you know, you spit it out and then I go, what's your ACL rehab protocol for an ACL that's worth uh, $10 million over the next six years? And you're like, uh, let me go check my notes. <laughs> yeah. And that needs to be ready um, in three weeks right. instead of three right. months right? Like, how do you really push that envelope? And, and, you know, Daryl and Luke and Brandon, and those guys all really, really challenged me um, to, to push myself. And, and there were a lot of times where I was like, no, he can't do that. And they were like, really, can he, can he not? Cause he needs to. And there were times when they would really make me push the envelope in an ethical and appropriate way. Um, but my rehab background was so conservative at times. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I I wasn't comfortable pushing the envelope, and so the more I hung out with the strength coaches, the better clinician I became. And that time was so formative for me. Um, I know it wasn't a great business time for Mark, but it was so great for for us um, as a group to really create programming uh, that I think set the foundation for Exos as it exists today, um, because we got to really integrate with each other and. Um, spend so much time together that it, it was, it's really one of the most special times in my life and in my professional career for real. 
Nice. And did you help develop some of the curriculum for the clinician training? Yeah, absolutely. I I was certainly had a a large hand in creating the rehab mentorship and, you know, obviously they've adapted it and modified and progressed it over the years as they should. And, uh, but yeah, you know, definitely um, had a hand in in creating a lot of those mentorship programs. And, um, you know, I remember when we first decided to do a a performance, even a performance mentorship program, um, let alone the rehab mentorship program, you know, um, to be able to, to work with those guys and create that program was, was pretty fun. It was really cool. Hey, we'll be right back with our interview with Sue Falsoni after this quick message. Hey, I know you've heard it before, but we now have a sponsor. Clinic Gym Radio is now being sponsored by the Chiropractic Success Academy. What is the Chiropractic Success Academy or the CSA? Well, it's a group of two doctors, Dr. Bobby Mavie and Dr. Kevin Christie, who put together uh, what they felt was the principal training system for chiropractors in private practice. It's going to cover all the things you need to know, business business skills, diagnostic skills, clinical skills, and it also focuses a large part on you as a person, right? Like you have to have a growth mindset. You've got to be ready to expand. You can't get complacent. You can't take a, uh, you can't take a step back with your clinic. You've always got to be on, on the cutting edge and thinking about what can be done in the future, right? Growing it to big, huge, thriving levels. I really love the fact that they have content about that because I think a lot of programs forget this aspect that, you know, this would be so easy if we weren't human beings, if we didn't get beat up emotionally and didn't take our losses uh, harder than we, than we celebrate our wins. I know I'm guilty of that. And so they address this in their CSA circle. So if you're interested, go check out membership.csacircle.com. Again, that's membership.csacircle.com. You can check out what they're offering and see why they're sponsoring our program because it's a perfect fit with the clinic gym hybrid model, right? Your clinic, through the CSA circle is going to be thriving. It's going to be a well-oiled machine running great. And then you add a gym to that and it's just the perfect situation, right? This is peanut butter and chocolate. It's better together than they are apart. So check them out at membership.csacircle.com. And now we'll get back to our interview with Sue Falsoni. Thanks. Well, let me ask you because I mean, you've seen this, um, the skill set that, that you're seeing in the standard I don't know, sports PT, sports Cairo world is so, is so much different now than it was when I graduated in chiropractic college uh, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, you know, and, and just in that, like when I graduated, it was considered uh, kind of forward to have a, a soft tissue skill set, you know, like, oh, I'm ART certified or I have grass and okay. training or something. Now that's, you better have that. I mean, for the last like three or four years, like that's, that's baseline now, you know? Yeah, and that's it's, it's like. The, the chiropractors are developing these great rehab ability, the uh, skill set. But what are you seeing? What did you see back then was the need? And what are you seeing now with, I mean, you have a structure and function is, is on the cutting edge of, of doing great classes for people who are pushing the envelope now. What, what are you seeing that trends that have developed? Yeah, you know, I think obviously dry needling is a pretty hot trend right now. Um, and, you know, I ha- have a, whole education company sort of surrounding dry needling education and cupping education. Um, and, and I'm the first to say that those things are amazing and they're tools. And obviously I've built a part of my business around it. Um, but at the same time, they're one tool that I use. They're certainly not the be all and end all for anything. And I think that if anything, if we can learn anything from history is that there is no be all and end all tool for every single patient and every single person. Um, it's about how we, I think a lot of times clinicians, uh, mistake tools for their philosophy. And I think 
what we need to do is make sure we have a solid philosophy of how we approach our patient care. Um, and then whatever tool is appropriate to use for that patient um, is what it is. And so, you know, if I'm in a state where I'm not able to use, utilize a needle or a situation where I can't, then I have my hands, I have a kettlebell, I have a TRX. The tool doesn't matter. It just, the tool helps me express my philosophy. And, you know, my philosophy is to restore and maintain homeostatic balance within my patient, whether that's biomechanical, biochemical, um, psychologically, you know, whatever that may be. And so um, whatever tool I use doesn't necessarily matter. And I think that a lot of times clinicians confuse tools with philosophy. Ooh, that's a great line right there. I should just pull that out and make that into like an Instagram meme. <laughs> yes, that, that is a good one. <laughs> yeah, nice. And <laughs> so when, when you are working uh, now in your, in your coursework, your classes, are they mostly for physical therapists? Is that who you're seeing come through? Athletic trainers? What's the licensing that you're seeing come through those courses? Yeah, from a dry needling perspective, yeah. the majority is um, physical therapists, athletic training, uh, athletic trainers, and chiropractors. Okay. And so, you know, just like it's all dependent on your state rules and regulations, um, oftentimes we usually have one either like physician or nurse in every class as well, which is really interesting. That's too. great. Yeah. Yeah, which is really cool. A lot of times non surgical sports medicine physicians are looking to add and to decrease the amount of injectate that they're using. Um, and so they're a lot of times they're kind of turning towards dry needling, which is pretty cool. They're going from um, wet needling to dry needling, huh? Yeah, they're going from wet needling to dry needling. And there's some, some interesting, um, some interesting research to kind of support that it's not really the injectate. It's the fact that you're creating a lesion and that you're forcing the body to kind of go through this healing process. And so really what you're, that's kind of why some, you know, the concepts of prolotherapy or or certain things work. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily what you're putting in. It's just the fact that you're creating a lesion, which is kind of interesting. Right. It's essentially an extrapolation of the idea of stem cells, right? Like it's yeah. not a foreign matter. It's just get the body to do what it originally did and you'll be in great shape. That's absolutely right. Stimulate the satellite cells in the area to differentiate accordingly. Yeah, man, you have a great vocabulary, Sue. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. This is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Wait till, we, wait till we get into a couple bottles here and then you'll really That's start right. coming out with the knowledge, right? Thanks. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, 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 so you're doing some consulting. I know you worked in professional sports. I do get some questions every, uh, every once in a while, folks that are interested, truly interested in going into professional sports. And I know it's a super easy path. It's very clear to outline. It doesn't take any luck and you don't have to have any uh, perfect timing, but what tips would you have for people who <laughs> are interested maybe to get in the college setting or prof- professional, I'm saying professional as in could be minor leagues and developmental leagues and whatnot, but get into those, those, uh, situations. Yeah. Be, yeah. Do what I did. Be in the right place at the right time. That's exactly how <laughs> I got my job. <laughs> and walk into the right buildings that turn out to be very big deals and that kind of stuff. You know? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people ask me that question and I'm like, sure. I've just had really, really good timing. Um, you know, not to diminish it. I, you know, I heard Al Vermeil speak who, you know, everyone typically knows who Al Vermeil is, but he was a strength coach for the um, Chicago Bulls during their heyday. And, you know, I watched him give a keynote lecture sure once. And, and I don't know if this is his line or if he stole it from someone, but I always attribute it to him. Um, you know, he's like, luck is when opportunity meets preparedness, right? And so uh, I'll admit, I've had a lot of luck. I've had a lot of opportunities that presented themselves to me and I was prepared to take them when they were presented. And so, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of luck when it comes to that stuff. Um, you know, I always tell people with, when it comes to these jobs, 
these, these jobs aren't often posted on job boards. Um, you know, these aren't things that oftentimes you're applying to. Um, it is a lot of who you know. And so... I mean, you didn't search Craigslist for LA Dodgers. <laughs> that's what popped up. Yeah, head athletic trainer opening. Yeah, yeah it, oddly enough, it wasn't on there. It's under the professional baseball oh. index. Yeah, you got to click on that one. But anyways. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah, so yeah, these, these things aren't posted. And so it's one of those things where I always tell people, you have to meet people. If you want to work in professional baseball, you need to be at the professional baseball athletic trainers meeting in January, right? If you want to work in football, you need to be at, you need to, to get an internship. I think um, uh, uh, they did a study in the NFL and they looked at like, I think it was like 85% of the athletic trainers in the NFL had an internship in the NFL, right? They hire from within. And so, you know, sometimes you, you've got to do one of those jobs or go to one of those um, conferences and meet people in mm-hmm. order to create relationships um, and, and to get those opportunities. And, and the more people you can meet at conferences um, in the area that you want to be in, um, the better chance you have, right? And, and creating, it's, it's about, it's not just about having the skill set. You absolutely 100% have to have the skill set as we talked about. Like that's that, the preparedness yeah. that Al talked about, right? Yeah. And that's the minimum standard. There's a lot of people that have the minimum standard, AKA yeah. the education and the skill set to work in that setting. But, you know, do you understand the schedule? Are you willing to make the sacrifice of not going to a whole lot of family reunions and weddings and funerals and right all of this stuff? And, you know, do you do you have the ability to communicate with the high school level, um, high school educated athlete and the athlete who is also a, a Ivy League graduate, right? And so can you communicate with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, from a lot of different countries? I mean, when I was with the Dodgers, I think we had six or seven countries on our team, right? So that's wow. a lot of different cultures. It's a lot of different, um, that's a lot of different people. And so there are a lot of intangibles. Um, you know, the minimum is do you have the skill set to work in that setting? Um, and so, yeah, you've, you've got to meet people and kind of really find out what the job is about. I think people think it's way sexier than it is. Um, <laughs> just out of curiosity, what's the earliest you've shown up for work uh, in professional sports? I think people o- overlook this aspect of it. Absolutely. You know what? I'm going to, it's, mine's actually probably not that bad. I think the earliest I've shown up is five. 5 a.m.? Yeah, which is okay. really not that bad in the grand scheme of things. What's I know the latest you've... At 3.30. Yeah. Well, I have some friends like, are working... ridiculous. Like, that's... that's I re- just refuse to do that. Well, it depends on the sport, though. I mean, baseball is an evening sport. I have said some right. friends in golf, and they're sometimes at the course at, you know, or they're up at their hotel at 3.30 or 3.45... Because if you have a seven o'clock tea time, you your player has to be warmed up by then. You that's know? right. That's right. But, so it is depending. I mean, I've worked more. Yeah, exactly. And what's the latest you've stayed at in the training room actively working? Oh gosh, one or two in the morning easily. Yeah. Yeah. People. Uh, so when people say they want to work in sports, it's like, <laughs> I hope you realize what that really means. It is. There's glory. There's pride. There's everything. But there's also long hours and crappy pay, and sometimes you're you're the last in line to be thought of. Right. And absolutely. And yeah, yeah, don't ever, sometimes we would play the game, you know, what does somebody make per hour? Mm -hmm. It's really interesting when it's a professional athlete, but it's not interesting when it's like the athletic training staff. (laughs) It's really pretty. (laughs) Even the head athletic trainer, you're still dividing on, huh? Uh, Let's see. I can, (laughs) every hour I can buy half of a top ramen. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's well, definitely not for the money. That's well, for sure. For those people that may be going down that path, can you share maybe one memory of the absolute worst, lowest moment in your career and then one that the absolute pinnacle of it? Like, because you get both, right? I mean, compared to the outpatient orthopedics, your highs aren't as high and your lows aren't as low. But when you're in professional sports, you're fully invested in the success of that team and those players. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Yeah, it's, um, it is. It's, it's really, really hard to not let your highs get too high and your lows get too low. Um, you have to be a, as much of a steady eddy as you can be. Um, and you can't get wrapped up in wins and losses. It's easy to do that, right? But like, Bottom line, management breathing down your neck about wins and losses, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but you know, I mean, I'm a healthcare professional. I've got nothing to do with wins and losses and, and you can't get wrapped up into the, into the outcome, which is easier said than done, right? Like, you know, when you're, especially you're in the playoffs and you're right. It's like such an exciting time, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm trying to phrase the story in a way that it won't make the person identifiable, you know, but I can remember a time where I was rehabbing somebody from an injury and, um, um, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that person gets re-injured and, um, you know, you take every precaution for every single return to play protocol that you do to diminish the chances of that happening. However, you know, as one of the physicians that I worked with so aptly said, he's like, Sue, sports med- the reason sports medicine is so interesting is it's because it's really the only time we take somebody who was injured doing the activity and our goal is to return them to that activity. Like you never would take someone and rehab them from a car accident and then ask them to go get into another car accident. And right. yet that's what we do with our offensive linemen every single week, right? Go run into somebody else who's 300 pounds. And, and, and if that, you can do it a little bit harder this time, that'd be great. Yeah, that would, that would be really helpful, right? Like we, we make our patients go back to the offending activity every single time. Yeah. And so the odds of them getting re-injured are large, right? Yep. And you can take every step possible and check off every box. Um, but physics is physics and the intensity of the game cannot be replicated, and so, you know, even at the minor league level, it's a completely different thing to be in a baseball game at the AAA level than it is at Dodger Stadium. And sure. so, you know, you can you can have running times, you can have pitching velocities, you can have all of these different things. But bottom line, the intensity of the game is what it is. And it's really not replicable. So the odds of them getting re-injured are fairly high. And so when that happens, oh, it can just be so devastating for the athlete and for you as a healthcare clinician. Like, what did I do wrong? What step did I miss? What box didn't we check? Um, And bottom line, like I said, when you really sort of critically look at it and you're like, oh, well, we checked every box and we we did everything we could and, and physics happens, right? Like, uh, but it's so devastating. So I can think of, of a couple times where that happened, that that was just really, really upsetting for everybody involved. And so, you know, those are probably my biggest lows. Um, you know, biggest highs is when that doesn't happen, right? Is when they come back and like, and the outcome of the game, like it shouldn't matter. Their first game back, it shouldn't matter if they go over. It just shouldn't matter, right? They got back and they played and they were healthy. They're in the yeah. uniform, yeah, they're suited. Yeah, they're in unit, right? And then they stay healthy the rest of the year and like that should be it, right? But like when you kind of have sometimes those magical times when it's like, 
uh, you know, and they get back and then they hit a game winning lock off. And it's, you know, like those are, are kind of some fun yeah. magical times. But um, like I said, it would be so easy if we weren't dealing with human beings and we weren't human beings ourselves. Right. right. If we were robotic and they were robotic, everything would be so simple. Right. That's absolutely right. But like, you know, the joy on their face and like, and I think that's what, what it comes down to is like, no matter what level, like even at the professional level, at the end of the day, like a lot of these guys play the game that's to the same intensity and with the same passion that they had when they were kids. And so it's really exciting when they get that reward and like, you're, you know, you're kind of like, a, a, I'm a little bit like a mom to them, right? I'm like, ah, oh, my kid did so good. And like, that's so exciting, right? I don't have children. Like people would always say like, oh, do you have kids? I'm like, yeah, I have 25 of them. Um, and, you know, it, it's exciting when, when they do well and when they're healthy. And so, you know, those are definitely some of my big highs for sure. Did your Italian roots come out? Would you go around the, uh, the locker room with a, a big pot of meatballs and like, here, I, mean, <laughs> I know you're playing in an hour, but here, eat, eat. but here, eat here, have some, yeah. meat. have yeah. some garlic bread. I made it for you. Yeah. I know. Eat it. Eat. You need more. Eat. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I, I remember uh, I had a little memory when you were talking, we had a golfer, a female golfer that had a college scholarship. She, uh, you know, and she had sustained a wrist injury and um, which just took forever to get better. It was just, you know, we were hoping to do it conservatively. She ended up having a surgery. It was just a nightmare case. Anyways, um, she's back. She's playing in a tournament. And it was so funny because she rips her off the first tee. She rips this drive that it's like, oh my God, this is awesome. And the ball's flying. She hit it farther. I think it was probably the longest drive of her career. Mom and dad are smiling. You know, we wink at each other. She's back. And because it was so far, she ends up plugging the ball into the face of like a fairway bunker that she's never reached before. And here we're coming back from an injury and the, like a shot you want to avoid is like deep sand or deep rough, right? Like if you can keep it on the fairway and keep the stress low. So her, her first shot is pure glory. Second shot is pure nightmare. And she <laughs> hits it. And I mean, just beats the crap out of the ball to get it out on the fairway. And afterwards, you know, she's holding her wrist. And so the parents now are like frightened. We're scared shitless. We're wondering if she's going to, you know, get out, walk off the course. And at some point she looks over at her mom and she can see that her mom's freaking out. And, uh, she tells her mom, anybody's wrist would hurt that shot. Don't worry, mom. <laughs> and just kept playing and ended up not like, it was so crazy because here I thought she was going to melt down psychologically, physically, the parents, you know, were scared. And she looks over with total clarity and going that hurt about as much as a normal shot out of that bunker should hurt move on. And it was like, God, you just never know sometimes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It was all, all those emotions were condensed in like a six and a half minute period, you know? And you're like, I'm giving up. I'm, you know, I'm burning the place down. It's over. I'm I'm quitting. I'm going to go into fashion design. And then she does that and you're like, you know what? I might stick around for a couple more days. We'll see see how it works out. It goes. It, It is. It's so true. And like you said, right. It's, it's, Right. We're, we're supposed to be objective, but at the end of the day, we are human and you do, you spend so much time with these people. And, and I think that's one of the cool things about professional sport, you know, is that, um, it's I, a I, world of passion, right? Like it is. It's they a- have to be passionate. Nobody who didn't have passion would play that many hours or practice that many balls or all the stupid techniques. You as a professional, if you weren't passionate about sports, you would never stick with that workload ever. That's right. Absolutely. You know, you never would. And so it's, you know, and then you do, you spend so much time with them and then you spend so much time with their families and you get to know their parents and their 
wives and their, uh, and their kids and you see them get married. And, you know, like one of the guys that I worked with for a really long time, like just retired. I mean, I worked with him since he was 18 years old. And, you know, over the course of the last 16 wow. years, he's gotten married and he's had children and he's retired and he's, you know, you, uh, in what other healthcare setting would you have a patient for 16 years of their life? Like that, you know, an outpatient, people come and go, you're lucky if you see them for six visits, right? And so, you know, the, the relationships that you create with these people um, on so many levels, not only with them, but with their families is really something special. And when people right. ask me like, do you miss professional sport? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yes and no. I mean, I'm still connected to it from a consulting standpoint, but, um, you know, on that day-to-day relationship level, it's really unlike anything else in healthcare. And, and it's really one of the kind of the special things about being in that setting for sure. Yeah. It's, it's in life uh, just like that has seasons, right? Like there's the season where you're trying to get that guy to reach the next level and you're hoping that you can get them to earn some more money over the next five years. Right. And then at retirement, it's like, Hey, are you just set up for the rest of, you you know, I want to preserve you from getting a major injury that's going to affect you in retirement, not even on the field anymore. Right. Those crazy, crazy thoughts you have to deal with. And like you said, it's super easy, super simple. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's Why interesting. Why would anybody do it? <laughs> right, absolutely. It's so crazy. And then, and to see their, their goals change over the years too, right? Like as a young, like, oh, I want to get a contract. Oh, I want to get out of the minor leagues and get out of the major leagues. Oh, I want to be an all-star. Oh, I want to be able to play with my kid when I retire. Like now, right? To watch their goals change over the span of their lifetime is really, really interesting. And then you have to adapt as well, right? Because now all of a sudden the goal isn't playing 100 games, at, you know, or too, it's how do we preserve your joints so now you can be a father because now you're looking at retirement. And so all of a sudden, as their life goals and their professional goals change, like you have to adapt and change with them too. So it's really, again, like no other opportunity in healthcare that I can think of would really allow you to shift someone's um, goals, you know, through the lifespan like that. It's pretty cool. Well, speaking about a long, uh, long lifespan and long career, if, if you were talking to somebody who's zero to five years out of school, some professional, whether it's athletic training, chiropractic, PT, uh, and you're looking out on what you see as the future is, what, what tips or recommendations do you have for them? That's a, that's a great question. I, I, think, um, I think the thing that well, I would... Of course, t- take dry needling through structure and function. I mean, that, that's a door opener right there, of course. <laughs> absolutely. That, that's number one. Number two, absolutely. Or distant number two. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, I think, I think the number one thing to to do, which I think as a young clinician, I didn't, I didn't think about, um, as much was collaboration and really kind of working with a lot of different healthcare professionals. I think as a physical therapist in PT school, uh, or as a young physical therapist and outpatient, right? We think of multidisciplinary as PTOT speech. And that's kind of what we're taught is multidisciplinary. And then in the field of sport performance, multidisciplinary is, PT, Cairo, MD, massage, acupuncture, right? Like keep naming all of the different things. Like that's multidisciplinary. And I think when you're a younger clinician, you feel like you have to be everything to everyone. And I think I, what I've learned over the years and what I think we all gain with experience is that I have no problem telling someone that I'm not the solution to their issue and to refer appropriately. Um, I think there's tons of power in referral. I think there's tons of power in collaboration. And when I say, hey, I'm going to focus on this, but I can't work with someone every day for six hours. So I almost need someone to collaborate with. Like, I'm going to work on this for an hour and then you're going to go over to this 
person, work on that with them for an hour. And then you're going to go to that person and work on that for an hour. And at the end of the day, your goals will be attained with three different people who are all working in an athlete centered model to attain your goals for you. And I think as a younger clinician, we, we often think that, well, if I have to refer then I don't know what I'm doing. That's going to come off as a weakness. And then they're going to go see somebody else. And so I would just encourage people um, to collaborate sooner than later in their career and kind of learn what all these other disciplines, you know, can really do and how they can enhance your patient care. And it kind of piggybacks on something else you mentioned earlier as a success trait, which is is like the Rolodex or, or people don't know what that is anymore. <laughs> Having a, <laughs> a lot of people in your contact list on your iPhone, basically, right? right? So like there you go. Forging those relationships early in your career so that you can reach out and th- those people think of you when opportunities arise. And if you're referring patients, they're reminded of your expertise and those opportunities often come up. I mean, I know out here we got the Vegas Golden Knights and, uh, and, as I understand, their, their sports medicine team is basically made up of people who are in Cirque du Soleil because those names were being, you know, thrown around and there was a very active community. And, but nobody knew two years before that that we were getting the Knights and nobody knew, you know, and unless you have already established those things, you don't know what's going to happen. Right, right. Absolutely. It's all about relationships. And, and so many opportunities that have come my way are because of the relationships that I've created a, a, over the years. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's amazing. You'll hear from someone that you haven't heard it from in the last five years. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, like, that's really cool that this person reached out, even though we hadn't talked in a long time. And, you know, I'm still in the back of their mind for advice or for a thought or for an opportunity. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, bottom line, whether it's life or professional, right? That's what it comes down to is the relationships that you create with people. And, and um, I think that's, that's really important. Nice. Well, if people want to get a hold of you or find more out about your courses and whatnot, or read your book, yes. uh, how can people find all of all those, inf- all that information about you? Yeah, absolutely. So super easy. Um, if you go to SuePalsoni.com, you can sign up for our newsletter and get a free pre- preview of the Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance book. Um, and you can buy the book um, from there as well. And then uh, all of the dry needling education stuff is at structureandfunction.net. Um, those things will hopefully be combined soon, but right now they kind of live in two different spaces. Um, and then on social media, super easy to find me. Um, it's just Sue Falsoni on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So super easy. Awesome. All right. Well, any last words you want to share with our, our listeners? Uh, man, we covered a lot of bases here, but I think, uh, I think it was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. It was so great to chat with you. And I really yeah. appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, on behalf of Sue Falsoni, this is Dr. Josh Satterley saying, go out there, maximize your license and do what Sue did, which is live the life you could only dream of. Thanks a lot, Sue. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're ready to double your profit without working longer hours, please visit clinicgymhybrid.com and find out how easy it is to get started on your path to freedom. That's clinicgymhybrid.com.